This is They Create Worlds, episode 83, The Sillywood Era, now in FMV. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. It's the dead of winter. It's cold outside, at least in the United States. So we're going to keep ourselves warm with all of the boxes from all of the failed games that came out during the 90s by setting them on fire, because by and large, most of them were bad. Wow, that got dark in a hurry. Well, that's okay. We can watch it now, all of it. Burn in full motion video just to enjoy it. (laughs) Yes, so we are back here now with part two of our look at the so-called Sillywood era. You may remember from last time that we've kind of set the stage now. We didn't really get into Sillywood, but we put all the ingredients in place. So just to kind of summarize that very briefly, you have a technological track going on which is CD is coming in, CD-ROM is coming in, multimedia is coming in. On the other side of things, you have the industry itself becoming large enough that Hollywood is starting to take notice of the much higher royalties they're getting on licensed property, and you have certain video game companies, uh, particularly companies like Cinemaware, that are starting to make their games a little more Hollywood-like. And that left you in a situation at the beginning of the 1990s where these two parties were, quite frankly, interested in doing business with each other. It was quite an interesting lead-up. A lot of the previous episode was really just showing and setting the foundation of what would lead to why we have the Sillywood era. Who are the major players that are involved in pretty much the buildup and lead up to, all right, we'll have Hollywood and Silicon Valley. They're both in California, so obviously they have to go have a marriage. (laughs) That's right. The first couple of companies to get involved, really, companies that got involved very early on in this from the Hollywood side were, I think it's fair to say, Disney and Sony. Now you're saying Sony, Hollywood. That's the Japanese company that makes the Walkman and later makes the PlayStation. And it's like, yes, that's true. But in the late 1980s, Sony also became Hollywood. And it goes right back to something that we talked about in our last episode, the VCR format wars. Just as a quick recap, we may recall that Sony had video cassette recording first, uh, for all practical purposes, in a commercial setting and was still roundly beaten by the VHS standard because everybody kind of rallied around VHS and Sony lost out. A big part of that was that all the technology companies went against them. I mean, there was a whole consortium arrayed against Betamax. But the other side of that is, of course, you had the software producers. We're not talking computer software. We're talking the movie companies. And they also backed VHS, by and large, because that's the way the public was going. The lesson that Sony got out of this was that they could not be in hardware alone. They also needed to be in software. 
Because if they're going to come out with a great new technology, they need to kind of make sure that at the very least, they are putting out content for their new technology. And they were honestly thinking about this in terms of movies and that kind of media. It's interesting that, of course, this is the same thing that video game console companies had been doing for years already. This is sort of the genesis of Sony Pictures, correct? That's exactly correct. So what they do in 1989 is that they buy Columbia, Columbia Pictures, and use that as the basis for a new Sony Pictures company. Which is why we don't see Columbia anymore with the nice lady in the glowing torch. Right. She shows up sometime, but uh, she is uh, a part of the Sony brand. And they get into the music business as well. Sony Music. Exactly. And this all happens because they realize that they need their own quote-unquote software to drive hardware. They're already moving in this direction. And so in 1991, they decide to do the same thing in video games. And they decide to get into video games because they're seeing this trend. They're a CD company. They're big in CD-ROM. They're part of that consortium that's done all the Rainbow Books. They know that this is coming. Philips is going about getting ready to introduce their own multimedia system, CDI. At this point, Sony has signed a deal with Nintendo. They signed it back in 1988. And they are also going to be working on a kind of multimedia system uh, with Nintendo called the PlayStation. We're not going to do a Sony PlayStation episode right here and right now. That's a completely different time. But the important thing about this is they're working with Nintendo on this. Sega is about ready to come out with their own CD peripheral, and they're interested in banding together on stuff. And so Sony establishes a publisher called Sony Imagesoft in 1991 in the U.S. It's a a U.S.-based group to work in this new multimedia field. Olaf Olafsson. The executive Swedish guy is put in charge of it. This group, as I'm sure we'll see in a future episode, God knows when, is kind of part of the foundational group that PlayStation grows out of. But we're not talking about that side of the business. Sony ImageSoft is a publisher. They are going to license product and take, you know, Columbia, TriStar, whatever product that they already have, and they are going to build games around it for this new multimedia. So that's Sony getting involved. Disney has a far longer, far more convoluted history with the software industry, and it's one we may even at some point in the future devote an entire episode to. So we're not going to go into all the twists and turns here, but Disney is a great case study in the kinds of forces that drive these media companies in and out and in and out of this computer software, video game business. Disney, of course, is a company that understands licensing and has understood licensing for a very, very long time. It's a core part of what they do, so it's no surprise that Disney would get involved early when we start talking about computer software. I mean, they weren't really involved in the the video game industry in the first wave, you know, the VCS, the golden age of arcade games, all of that, because that kind of thing really isn't Disney. I mean, the idea, you know, so many of those are shooting games. The idea of just you're shooting, you're killing, that's not part of the Disney image. That's not part of the Disney brand. 
But when you get to home computers, when you get to things like the Apple II, the Commodore 64, you're talking about something that has a perceived educational component to it as well and something that could house software that is friendlier for younger or more sensitive children, which really fits more into the Disney mold. So they did. Uh, as early as 1984, 80, I believe, they established uh, Walt Disney Computer Software. They primarily licensed. Uh, it wasn't really much in-house development. They'd have producers. They'd license out. Sierra was one of the companies, for instance, that actually created Disney software in their earlier days. Can't remember if we talked about that in our Sierra episode or not. We probably mentioned it, but uh, that's just one example. So they're doing this, and they notice that they're getting good royalties on it. This is the cycle that all of these companies go through. Since these companies are focused on other areas, they want their internal subsidiaries to justify themselves. I mean, if you have an internal software division, you're competing against toys, you're competing against video cassette sales, you're competing against the theme parks, <laughs> if you're Disney. You're competing against the other areas of the business. If you're not pulling some kind of weight, if there's not a perceived value to the money being invested in that area when compared to investment in other areas, then companies don't really want to do that. Now, that doesn't mean that your video game division or your computer software division has to make as much money as your movie division if you're primarily a movie company. I mean, they're not comparing it like that. But they should be at least self-sustaining. The amount of money that I put into you should at least equal or exceed the money that comes out of you. Exactly. Otherwise, it's hard to justify moving into that area, because why are you losing money on something that is not a core competency of your business, right? That mm -hmm. stands to reason. Unless it's part of some sort of like war chest, I want to take this guy out and move them out of the company or out of the business or yeah. out of the sphere. I exactly. That's the only viable case where that would be necessary. But even then, that's only for so long. Exactly. No, you're absolutely right. So what these companies usually do instead is they grant licenses. You grant a license, you are risking nothing. You are paying nothing. The other company is actually paying you for the privilege of using your IP. You have to hire a couple of guys, producers or whatever, to be watchdogs and a couple of administrative staff maybe to make sure all the contracts are filed properly. But your licensing fees and your royalties are going to pay for those guys' salaries no problem. So you're essentially putting no money on the table for that. Everything you get back from the other company is pure profit. Now, of course, the downside is they are just paying you a flat royalty of some kind. They are making the bigger profit. They're having to put in the costs of making it. They're taking the risk that the product fails and whatever losses come from that. But then they also get the bigger reward. So comparatively speaking, let's say for every $100 this licensee makes, I get $30, they get $70. Mm -hmm. That's great because that's $30 pure profit. Right. But let's say that company is just putting $20 per unit into the making and marketing of the product. Well, they've just made $50 to your $30. They've made more money. And plus, if you were doing it in-house, you wouldn't just get their $50 profit. You'd still also get your $30 profit. So yes, by doing it myself, I reap a much greater reward, but also, conversely, I take on a significantly higher risk. And you risk also, or not risk, but you also worry about 
sinking too much money into something that's not your core competency. So all of these companies, whenever they first start approaching, it's almost always through licensing. We have this great property. You know how to make games. Here's our property. Make a game. Then they start getting money back. And if it's a period when the market is in an upswing, the video game industry is in an upswing, like, say, when the Nintendo Entertainment System first hits big, suddenly you have money pouring in. And you're like, we're making this much money. But how much more money could we be making right now if we were doing this ourselves? All of it. Exactly. But then they invest and they start doing that and they're like, oh, whoa, whoa. This is not what we signed up for. What's going on? This is hard, man. Work is hard. Whoever told us making games was hard. It's games. They're supposed to be fun, not hard. Right. And so then they get not necessarily burned because it's not even necessarily that they're doing horribly. I would say disillusioned. I think that's a good way to put it. Disillusioned. So, and that's kind of what happened with Disney. Uh, So going back to our case study, Disney computer software starts growing and they start doing in-house development on computer products. When the NES comes in, they continue to license to companies like Capcom and Sega to do console product because that is a whole nother level of commitment. We've talked about the commitment of cartridges versus discs. But they're doing this hybrid where they do most of the computer stuff in-house and most of the console stuff out of house. Now, they still might license or not license. They still might contract outside developers to do some of the computer stuff, but they're publishing it themselves. They're taking on the manufacturing, the packaging, the distribution, the marketing. They're doing all of that, even if they're still not necessarily building all the product in-house. Whereas with the console stuff, they're just saying, here's our name. Here's our property. We get final approval, so report back to us as you make it, and we'll make sure you didn't make Mickey's ears too small or kill Donald Duck in gruesome ways. Or get Minnie captured away by ghosts and then have to have Mickey chase after him on a Sega Genesis. (laughs) Oh, wait, they allowed that one. Well, yeah, and and of course, that's considered one of the good ones. But, you know, a a good example of this, there was a, a Mickey game on the NES, and just like any standard video game of that time, it was a platformer. Just like any standard platform of the time, you know, Mickey had his, you know, started the game with his three lives or whatever and was jumping through things. And Disney was like, no, 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 no. Mickey cannot die. This is Mickey Mouse. They don't mean that he's like some invincible god. He just means the poor, fragile children of America would not be able to live with themselves, their logic, if they killed Mickey Mouse. Mickey cannot die, so he doesn't have lives. Just like it's copyright. (laughs) Yeah, right. Whole other issue, but oh yes. So Mickey cannot have lives. He must have tries. So it's still the same thing. You can still hit an enemy or fall in a pit or whatever and have to start over, but you didn't spend a life. You spent a try. Just like all the Pokemon, you know, just go to sleep. (laughs) They just get knocked out. Yeah, about that. (laughs) Upside down and inside out. Issues. (laughs) Right. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. But other than that, they give them free reign to do what they do best, which has included some great collaborations like Castle of Illusion and uh, like Aladdin on the Sega Genesis as well. So they have this hybrid thing going where they're doing some stuff in-house. This is like the late 80s we're talking about now. And the problem was there were two problems. 
the first problem was is that it wasn't really becoming profitable. Again, they weren't doing terribly, but they weren't really making money on it. And when you have an ancillary business, as we just talked about, you're not too impressed with that ancillary business if you're not making money on it, because the whole point of an ancillary business is to milk a little more profit out of your IP. So if you're breaking even on it or making just a pittance, why are you doing it? Right. If you are only making that same $30 profit and it costs you $70 out of that 100 in order to make it. Yeah. And that's mostly because you have to hire the talent. Mm -hmm. Your talent doesn't know as much. You don't have an established team. You don't have established procedures. And they go, well, it costs more money to do it. You don't have the connections. You don't have the knowledge. It takes more time. You have to do things the old-fashioned way because that's the established practice. You don't have the cool, awesome programmer who knows how to do things in a quick, easy way. (laughs) Exactly. There could be a myriad of things, and there's ramp-up and setup costs to that. That initial startup cost is a lot. i got to come up with space in order to put those programmers and developers. I need computers, networking, hardware, Mm -hmm. software, prototyping, Mm -hmm. all sorts of things. Stuff that already might be a sunk cost for these other companies that have already gone through the process of, okay, how do I make a game for the Nintendo? Right. Fantastic. We've already gotten that sorted out with Larry's fantastic jumping game. (laughs) Now let's make uh, Bob's more awesome jumping game, and we don't have to go through the whole learning process we did with Larry. Yeah, absolutely right. So you had a division that was doing okay, but it wasn't really doing fantastic. Then it was also kind of lost in limbo because once it started getting some profile, because even though it wasn't very profitable per se, it was getting profile. Then there was a fight over who gets control of it within the company. Consumer products wanted it. Entertainment wanted it. You know, they have these multiple divisions within Disney and video games have always been kind of known for straddling product categories. I mean, The video game is its own product category, and when you have video game companies making video games, there's very clearly a category there. But if you're a media company where you are not really in the video game industry, video games can straddle a lot of different categories within your business because it's a licensing endeavor, but it's also a creative endeavor. It's an ancillary product, but it can also be a primary entertainment product. So where does that video game division fit? within your organization if you're a larger conglomerate like some of these media companies are. Which one of the 50 VP get to take credit? Exactly. (laughs) So there got to be a fight within Disney in the late 80s. I've talked to Roger Hector, who was there, and there was a great article on Polygon uh, where they also talked to Roger Hector, but they talked to some other people that I haven't as well. And so we've gotten the story from people that were actually within that computer software uh, interactive apparatus at the time, there got to be a fight between a couple of different divisions as to who got to actually run this business. This was when Michael Eisner was still there. He was CEO. And it, it was getting up to that level where Frank Wells and Michael Eisner, Frank Wells being the president, had to get involved. And when it got to that level, it wasn't worth their time. It's like, why are we fighting over this small a portion of the business when you're talking about profitability and revenue. Why are we doing this? This is not worth it. So we're going to shut it down. Not forever. They did start it back up a little bit. And, and this time when they shut it down, it was with the intent of starting it up again once they figured it out. But 
basically, you know, Roger Hector said this. They were given their marching orders, finish up what you got. And, and, you know, they kept licensing. But we're talking about some of the more internal stuff. Finish up what you got. And then we're just we're done until we have a better idea of what we're doing here. So they kind of closed down at the end of the 80s or the beginning of the 1990s. First of many <laughs> at Disney. We won't go into all of them in this episode. It's not the focus, but we have an episode title for that one. <laughs> we do. And uh, one of these days we'll wheel it out, though. I wouldn't say I've gathered quite enough string yet to do that justice. But yeah, a little sneak preview there. So the point is, you know, they're kind of winding down. Sony is uh, getting in at the same time that they are uh, kind of starting to get out. They're really kind of the first two in. Obviously, uh, a bigger and more famous example is Lucasfilm Games. I mean, that's tech. I mean, Lucasfilm, they're not a big media conglomerate, but they are a movie company. And of course, they found Lucasfilm Games, which later becomes LucasArts. We're not really considering them in this episode very much because it's it's a very different kind of thing they really committed to that industry in a very different way and they're not a huge media conglomerate just because lucasfilm made movies they're not a disney or a paramount or a fox that has movie production and movie distribution and all of that kind of thing Though admittedly, they did put out quite a few very memorable, very iconic games. Oh, absolutely. All worthy of coverage. Just I wouldn't group them in with the media companies coming in because it's a it's a different kind of thing. But, you know, they're there in the 80s, too, obviously. And, and Disney's there and Sony is coming in at the beginning of the 90s. And, and that's about it. After that first wave, we talked about the first wave in the early 80s in the last episode. Things are moving. The technology we've talked about is moving. And kind of the big bellwether where this starts becoming a larger thing again is actually when Nintendo and Sony make this partnership, because these are two of the big guns. I mean, Nintendo is the company in video games circa 1990. Most definitely. Sony is one of the biggest companies in consumer electronics, period. And they are the co-creator of this CD-ROM technology. So when you're bringing these two together, that's a big deal. And this is a period when particularly the Japanese companies are starting to look for high-quality multimedia content that they can put on this video game platform. This is going to be a video game platform, this uh, Nintendo CD player. Obviously, the multimedia PCs are starting to come in, too, but the multimedia PCs haven't really reached their apex yet. Kind of, they crest in interest a couple of years later. So in this period, it's really starting to look at the video game side of it that gets some of these companies moving. And that's where we start seeing some of the first true interactive movies kind of emerge. Certainly, uh, the most interesting one is in regards to Sony. Sony is looking for content for this new PlayStation. They end up learning about these games that had been made for Hasbro in the late 1980s for a console that they never released. And it just so happens that the head of Sony in the United States, Mickey Schulhoff, his PR guy, is the brother to some guy named Tom Zito. Sound familiar? 
Maybe. And so this guy's calling Tom and he's like, yeah, we had this, you know, this weird discussion. And there was like, we learned about this game where you like shot bats in the sewers or something. And it was full motion video and we could probably use it. And Tom's like, I own the rights to that. I mean, what an incredible coincidence. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. (laughs) It is amazing how a lot of things in life is just who you know. And so Tom, as we said at the end of the previous episode when talking about Nemo, Tom had retained the rights to everything and just locked it up in a warehouse. And now Sony's coming looking for it. And Zito, because his brother works for the Sony guys, realizes that they're coming for it. So they get together and they're able to start talking. And so Tom Zito's like, my future has arrived. This technology can now see the light of day. And he founds a new company called Digital Pictures. Now, this is right around the time that the Sony-Nintendo deal is falling apart. So he never ends up signing with Sony because the whole PlayStation thing collapses. But this is what got him to get the technology out of mothballs and to get him to realize that somebody is interested in doing this. And so then once the Sony thing falls apart, he immediately turns around to Sega. Sega is launching very shortly in 92, 1992, a CD-ROM peripheral for the Sega Genesis that they've done in conjunction with JVC. JVC, Japanese Victor Company, is another important Japanese consumer electronics company that has gone in with this consortium and is becoming one of the important makers of CD drives in Japan. So Sega, since Nintendo has gone with Sony, Sega has turned to JVC, which is probably the second biggest Japanese company uh, at the time in, in CD drives, not as big as Philips on a worldwide basis, but just in Japan. They've turned to JVC and they're going to make a drive because this is all kind of percolating. And so Zito turns around to Sega and is like, I've got these games. They would work great on CD. They're movies. Sega's like, that would be great. So we are going to help fund you finishing these because, I mean, they need to be, they were mothballed. They need to be converted to work on the CD technology and, you know, polished up a little bit. I mean, that kind of thing. Updated, configured to actually work and play on a... Genesis thing. So Sega agrees to help Digital Pictures get those things together and Sewer Shark and Night Trap become launch titles. I think Sewer Shark may even be bundled. I'm not sure, but they become launch titles on the Sega CD. And so this is one of the first examples of seeing some of this full motion video content be realized. It was actually stuff made in the 80s for video cassette. But now it's coming in because of this kind of excitement around CD that's been created by Nintendo and Sony and all of these companies, Philips, getting involved in this space. Which is also why, if you actually look at these things, it looks like someone decided to take something from the early 80s, late 70s (laughs) and decided that that would make a good backdrop for this thing in the 90s. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, it was a few years out of date. I mean, 87, 88 is about when they created them. You know, they weren't necessarily creating them with the most state of the art, big budget stuff in 87, 88. So, yeah, I mean, of course, it would already look dated then. And now we're talking about waiting another four or five years before it actually sees the light of day. And so, yeah, you, you get a you get a real situation there. But that's kind of one of the opening shots. And of course, Night Trap becomes very infamous. 
because it becomes part of that congressional hearing in 1993 in the United States Senate. Mortal Kombat, with its digitized graphics, and Night Trap, with its full-motion video, become front-page national, uh, even probably to some extent international news, because of the Congress just a year later. So that's, you know, one of these first moves into FMV that sees the light of day. I think kind of the big moment is kind of 1993. 1993 is when this whole movement crystallizes. And I don't think it's any coincidence that all the media companies start coming in in the 93, 94, 95 period because they see kind of what happened with some of the big product of 1993. And there are three products that stand out in that time period. First one is actually going to bring us back to that LucasArts company that I said we weren't going to talk too much about. And we're not. We're not going to talk about them in the context of the media company. LucasArts, uh, I think it just changed its name to LucasArts. Some of these products might have started development under Lucasfilm Games, but it's right on the turnover. LucasArts had gotten involved in the console business. When they got involved in the console business, their publisher was JVC, Japan Victor Corporation, which we just talked about. JVC was, of course, getting very involved in this new multimedia space because they were a maker of CD drives, like the ones they were providing for the Genesis. They were also very involved in a Japanese computer called the FM Towns, which was really one of the first fully optimized multimedia PCs in the world, by which I mean it was a PC that was specifically shipped with a CD-ROM drive and with great graphics and sound hardware, like a complete package that was deliberately meant to be part of this new multimedia wave. I don't know if they supplied the CD drives for that or not it's Japan and I don't have as, as great a knowledge, but I do know for a fact that JVC was very interested in that platform. Through the JVC connection, LucasArts also became very interested in that platform, and they actually ported some of their adventure games and whatnot to the FM towns, even though that was a Japanese-only thing. That was not something that was in the West. Another company that was lured in on the FM town side of things was the British company Cygnosis we've brought up a couple of times before. Cygnosis was a very technologically savvy company, and they were very interested in the new technologies. They were looking at what was going on in multimedia with the CDTV, which was a Commodore attempt at a multimedia package in the home. They were looking at what was going on in CDI. They were looking at what was going on with the FM towns in Japan, and they had some very clever folks they actually figured out how to do a game engine where they basically digitized video and were able to kind of do flight simulation and, and some cutscene stuff in essentially real-time uh, streaming where they take real video, digitize it, do their voodoo with it. It's not straight full-motion video like something in, in Night Trap. It's still pixel graphics, but they look really, really, really realistic because the pixel graphics are derived from video, kind of like the digitization in Mortal Kombat or something like that, but much smoother. Uh, you know, it's, it's a whole different kind of technology. 
and they create a demo, and this demo is online. We're going to put that in the show notes. They create a demo, I think on the CDTV, called Planet Side. And it shows this, like, fighter jet flying over this de- desert landscape. Just in the context of the times, and the graphics available at the time, it looks absolutely amazing. So now I'm going to tell a story that I don't think many people know, because I have not seen it on the internet. Now, maybe it exists on some corner of the internet. I have not explored the whole internet. It's large. But I have not personally seen it on the internet. A lot of people think that Planetside was just a canceled Cygnosis product, just something that never went anywhere. But this is not actually true, because what happened is JVC saw this technology, and they wanted to use that technology on the FM Towns and on other multimedia platforms that they were involved with, because they were kind of involved with Cygnosis. But they thought it could use a little more pizzazz. JVC is also the publisher for LucasArts. So JVC's like, we can take this engine and this technology, and we can meld it with the Star Wars license. So a three-way partnership was formed between Cygnosis, JVC, and LucasArts. The result of this is that this technology was taken by LucasArts and turned into a little game called Rebel Assault. I'm not sure people really realize that Planetside and Rebel Assault are linked like that. But I've talked to the people that were at LucasArts at the time, the upper management people, and that's, that's the story there. Wow. Rebel Assault was kind of groundbreaking. It, they did have some full motion video cutscenes, like they took scenes from the movie and threw them in in between missions. The main thing that was cutting edge about it, though, is that they had these digitized graphics that looked almost like real video. I mean, you've played Rebel Assault, haven't you? I think we all did back in the day, at least a little bit. I didn't play it. Oh, well. I was the unlucky one. I get, well, I mean, it's not, it's not, that, <laughs> it's not that great a game, okay? It's, it's basically an on-rail shooter because they have this technology that allows you to make it all look realistic. But, of course, that takes a lot of processing power in the context of the times. So they can't just let you fly willy-nilly in an open-world setting. It's not X-Wing. It's not X-Wing or TIE Fighter, where you're in open space and you're flying around wherever you want to fly within the confines of the engagement, engaging targets when you want, where you want. It's not like that because it it doesn't have that power. It's essentially an on-rails shooter. The flying takes care of itself, and you're just shooting at the targets as, as they pop up and maneuvering just a tiny little bit. Think of any, if you've actually been to any arcade recently or heck in the past, most Star Wars shooting kind of things where you fly an X-Wing or something else, a lot of them are actually on rail shooters. There's actually a really cool looking dome-shaped screen rail shooter Star Wars thing that's actually at our local Dave & Buster's where you're just on that rail shooter and you're just moving a little crosshair that shoots the lasers and trying to blow up as much things as possible. Rail shooters are very easy to do because you have a known path that you're going through the environment. You can pre-render all of that so that you can just keep playing it. And the only asset that you're really adding or removing are just a few sprites of, okay, I have this ship coming closer to me. It's getting larger and larger and larger until it's shot. Then I remove it. But the background, the everything that's going on and pretty laser shooting and all the uh, planets flying and whatnot, that's pre-rendered. We all know how that's going to play out. That's going to play out statically, constantly. Exactly. So it's really not a great game in hindsight. 
But at the time, you know, and of course we'll put it in the show notes, uh, but that doesn't really... We don't care. We want to see the pretty graphics and we want yeah. to experience on my computer... I'm flying around shooting down TIE fighters. And, and, Yay. But you see, it, it almost felt like being in the movie in a way that even something like the Vector Star Wars arcade game from 1983, which incidentally was also a rail shooter, a game like that even didn't capture because the graphics, even though they were digitized, it almost felt like they were movie quality graphics. And especially, you know, for someone at the time, I mean, it may not look like much if you're looking at it today. In the context of a time, it's like, suddenly, we're in the movie. Yeah, and keep in mind, you're thinking of today's modern graphics, which is, frankly, astounding what we can put out these days. Oh, yeah. Back in the day, you had much lower resolution for these movies that you saw. Star Wars, the only time you ever saw it really high quality, high definition of anything even approaching that was in a theater and even then, only a high-end theater. Right. Most of the time, a lot of people were exposed to it. My first exposure to Star Wars was on the small screen, on a television. We're not talking your HDTV over there in the corner, kids. We're talking about that Samsung in my corner that's all small and about 22 inches. And <laughs> that was considered large back in the day. Absolutely. That kind of graphics is really, really poor in comparison to what we can put out today. But you take that degree of graphics and throw that over to the fact that a PC can do something that's akin to that, where you got that fuzziness going on, that pixelation going on that you would really see as you're going to watch this on your LCD screen. If you were to watch this on an older CRT monitor, it would look good because it's almost like those pixelations take advantage of the fuzziness factor. Right, exactly. And really, it helps fool your mind into what's going on. Sort of the same way that you sort of look at CGA graphics these days and go, how could you play something like that? <laughs> the real reason is it's because back in the day, CGA graphics didn't have the palettes that we use today. It took advantage of older hardware that was really designed around that. So when you played a CGA game, it fooled the eye because you had these colors and palettes that were next to each other and the fuzziness and sort of the shortcuts that were used worked good for the medium in which they were presented, but in a modern context, the medium, it just doesn't work anymore. Exactly. So, you know, Rebel Assault was huge. It was hugely popular, did millions of units. It was bundled a lot because LucasArts really did a lot of OEM bundling with CD-ROM drives, uh, not just with Rebel Assault, but with some of their adventure games because they were very quick to start adding dialogue to their adventure games as well, recorded dialogue. They didn't change the way the graphics looked compared to a, a disc version, but they put voices in. So they did a lot of OEM bundling, and Rebel Assault really got out there, and because it was right when Star Wars was having a bit of a, a renaissance after the Timothy Zahn novels had appeared, it kind of just captured everything perfectly right then and there. The second game was actually the product of Virgin, the British publisher, but which also had a U.S. office, and it was in the U.S. office that this took shape. There were two guys at Virgin USA by the name of Graham Devine and Rob Landeros. Graham Devine was uh, from Britain. He had come over when Virgin started its U.S. branch. He was a programming prodigy type. 
he had started making games for Atari in the UK for their UK branch when he was a teenager, you know, for computers and and whatnot. I mean, he was just a great coder, one of these bedroom coders that really launched the British computer game industry. Rob Landross was American. He was an artist, not a programmer. He was a talented artist. He had been at Cinemaware, so he had been at this uh, crucial early interactive movie company. Interactive movie, not in the sense of the full motion video, but we may recall that Cinemaware called their products, quote-unquote, interactive movies. So they're now both at Virgin, and they're both interested in cutting-edge technologies, and they've been attending CD-ROM conferences. In the late 80s, there were a lot of conferences. Microsoft sponsored a lot of them because they were really gung-ho about this on emerging CD technology. We talked about this a little in our last episode. A lot of that was focused on, we can now have an encyclopedia on a computer. But these are game guys. Not many game guys are going to these conferences. This is kind of why they're on the cutting edge here, because they're going to CD-ROM conferences that game guys aren't necessarily going to. But they see that technology and they're like, okay, there's a game here. It's like, okay, we can put music, we can put voice, we can put video. We can do something new in games here. The technology uh, provides some limitations. It's kind of natural that with the video capabilities at the time, you'd be drawn to an adventure game format. That's really what Digital Pictures discovered, too. I mean, Digital Pictures did basically two kinds of games. They did games like the old Laserdisc games where you're flying around and occasionally twitch left, twitch right to decide on a path. and Very much the Dragon's Lair model. Right. And then they did the whole Night Trap, Scene of the Crime kind of thing, which those were not pure adventure games because they had to work within the confines of video cassette tracks which placed certain limitations on what they could do, but it was more being part of a story unfolding. And I mean, there weren't really puzzles in that game, but you were setting traps, you were interacting in a way that was similar to an adventure game, even if Night Trap itself would not be considered an adventure game. That's kind of the other logical approach you can take with this, because it's not real time. You can't really, if you're going to have people on the screen, you can't have it like really be a real time action game because you can't really make these people do all the moves that they need to do to be quote-unquote animated on screen and have it look very good if you're supposed to be controlling them. I mean, it doesn't work. When you're controlling them, it's it's herky-jerky sometimes, and you decide you're going to do this, and then suddenly decide, no, I'm going to go this way instead and turn around. I mean, the way you can move a Mario around the screen, that just isn't going to work moving a human avatar around the screen. The way the animations would have to be intercut with each other it would just end up coming looking jerky and completely just awful. So you need something where you're providing purposeful movement, but it's purposeful, predictable movement. And you need something that isn't really responding to things in real time with your avatar. And so an adventure game is, is the logical way to go. Landros was a fan of Blue. Lots of people are. Graham Devine was a fan of a Mac game that had come out a few years before called The Fool's Errand. It was almost like a storybook with a series of puzzles that you had to solve as you're moving through the storybook. That's not quite what it is, but that's essentially what it is. We'll put it in the show notes. So they had the idea of Clue, which is you're moving around from room to room trying to solve a mystery. I mean, at its very basic level, that's what Clue is. And then they had the fool's errand side of things, which is you're moving around a space solving puzzles as you go. I mean, there's no story, really, in the fool's errand. You have various puzzles and you're going to solve them. 
And so they had that. And then they were both fans of Twin Peaks, which was airing at the time. This was about 1989 when they were coming up with all of this. Twin Peaks had this really surrealistic thing going on and this really a lot of symbolism and a lot of dreamlike stuff and a lot of just weird stuff happening. And so they put this all in a pot and they're like, we can make some kind of interactive movie. I don't know that they use that term, but we can make some kind of interactive movie out of all of these elements. So they go to see Martin Alper. Martin Alper is the head of Virgin USA. He was one of the co-founders of Mastertronic. Long story short, merged with Virgin and now is, is part of all of this. And he was the one that they sent over to the U.S. to open the American branch. So they go out to lunch with Martin. They tell him we got this great idea and, uh, you know, it's going to be CD and it's going to be interactive and it's going to be, you know, video and real people and yay. Martin Alper's like, that sounds great. You're sure you want to do this? Like, yeah, 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 we want to do this. All right. Well, then you're fired. And they're like, what? And it's like, this is a fantastic idea, but it is too big a risk for us to invest in in-house. So what we're going to do is we're going to help you set up your own development studio. And then you are going to make this game of yours. And then we are going to publish it. Two conditions. You need to stay in the area. Virgin is in uh, Orange County, Irvine, California. You need to stay close by, within 100 miles or so of us, with your new company, so we can keep an eye on you. And we're going to need a floppy disk version, too. Because this is 8990. This is before the multimedia PC has become a thing that people are buying. It's a thing people are starting to become aware of, but they're not buying yet. When we bought games back in the day, we bought it and we had a stack of 20 floppy disks installing disk one, <laughs> installing disk 12. I'm going to go make dinner now, installing disk 20. <laughs> oh, look, it's the next day. You can now play your game. <laughs> right. So you're going to have to give us a floppy disk version too. Don't go too far away. Make us a floppy disk version. So they immediately relocate to Oregon. Uh, about that. Because <laughs> they found a place they liked up there. <laughs> and of course, they never get around to making the floppy disk version because they never could have made a floppy disk version. They decide that the game has to be constrained because of the limits of the technology. You can't be running through fields and forests and hills and whatnot. So they have to constrain it. So they need to put it in a house. I mean, this works well with the clue inspiration anyway. They decide they're going to put it in a house. That'll make it a lot easier to work with the technology. Initially, they were actually going to use actual images, real images of a house and like digitize them. So you had a real images, real photos, essentially making up the house. Well, that didn't end up working. They just couldn't get that to work and look good. So the house ends up being rendered. So this is not complete video. It's not like Night Trap where the entire scene is something that was shot, and then you're putting an interface on top of that, obviously. This is backdrops that are pre-rendered, because it's the only way to get it to work. But they're going to use real people, shot in front of a blue screen. That's right, blue screen. The days before green screen. <laughs> well, green screen existed, but it wasn't like the de facto standard yet. I mean, people understood green screen. It's all based. It's called chroma keying. Right. And exactly. uh, it pretty much I say, I take this color and I remove it and then I replace it with whatever I want to replace it with. I don't know the exact reasons why, but I think it's because blue is more prevalent in a lot of things. I think so. And blue became 
deprecated in favor of green because that particular shade of green is not very common in normal occurrences. Right. That's my understanding from a layman's perspective. Yeah. But I believe they shot in blue screen for this one. So they're shooting people in front of blue screen, which is great. There's just one problem. When you're melding video with pre-rendered background, that can create some real problems, especially if you're not very adept at what you're doing with blue screen or green screen and don't frame things well. Or lighting. Right, or lighting, or lighting. Lighting's usually the biggest one. Yes, absolutely it is. There can be a real problem with integrating the two. You get a lot of pixelation around the edges that you just kind of can't quite get rid of. And they were having a problem with this. They were shooting these actors, and there was kind of this halo all around them, this kind of aura all around them, which was the pixelation on the edges, the, the lighting elements or elements from the blue screen peeking through that they couldn't quite clean up. I mean, you could theoretically clean it up, but you would have to, with the technology of the time, you would have to literally go frame by frame and manually eliminate every single pixel. Chroma keying is interesting, and the technology behind it is something that's constantly evolving and is getting better and better and better. And it's frankly the fact that you can have live streamers today with a green screen behind them and live chroma screening going on there. You can't really tell the difference where they're pixelated or not unless they're using some sort of older setup. It's frankly astonishing that that's in the capabilities of consumer hands. We could do it here if we wanted to, conceivably. Sure. Not really great for the podcast, but uh, (laughs) maybe those live streams sometime. It's just interesting, just over the span of the last 20 years, just how much chroma keying and green screening, blue screening, and the layman's standpoint evolved and the algorithms have gotten good enough that it can really go in. And then there's people who can take interesting software and then really help make that realistic by going, oh, I see in the background here, I have this light source that's this color. I need to have my subject dynamically get that color. So I'm going to create a fake little light here that's going to shade on their face that light that's supposed to be reflecting off of that screen over there. And that makes it a lot more realistic. And that's just using today's technology, stuff that you can download now more or less for free and do it. It's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. But that's now. Right. Back then... It's hard. The fact that you could even just have that happen at all was a miracle unto itself, let alone getting around a lot of these difficulties of how do I make those edges work? Those algorithms weren't really that advanced. Right. How do I make that lighting work? Well, you don't have the great computers we have now that can do ray tracing in order to fake that ray stuff. You have to really think ahead as a producer. I have to go, okay, what is my background that's Mm -hmm. going on? Okay, Bob, I need you to have a light shining on her that is this color at this intensity, and we need this to go on now. That's something that a full movie studio needs to know and do. And even then, they don't do it that well back then. Exactly. You want an example of that? Look at a modern rendition of Hunt for Red October near the (laughs) end of it. They're in front of literally a blue screen on a ship, and it just looks so jarring and bad today because (laughs) they look distinctly different from the background. They don't meld into it. Back in our old CRT fuzzy displays, that didn't matter so much because you couldn't see the detail. On a modern display, it's really, really jarring to see that. 
So you're having a game company trying to do that exact same thing, which is really advanced for the time. And they don't know about the things that you have to keep in context. Lighting, how the background goes on when you have a character there so that you can have a character that looks like they're realistically standing and moving into that. Even making sure that you have a flawless screen, that you don't have flaws in your blue screen that leak through. Yeah, there's problems like that. And that's again, goes back to the chroma keying algorithm. Exactly. So they ended up with footage that in one sense seemed unusable because it had this aura. It had this really bad pixelation along the edges. But then they thought, you know what? It almost looks ghostly when they have that halo effect around them. So we'll make them ghosts. And so instead of you being there with these people and interacting with these people at the time, you're learning what happened in the past as you solve puzzles. So this, of course, what we've been talking about is the seventh guest. Combining this idea of Clue with this idea of the fool's errand where you're just going around solving brain teasers and then putting a Twin Peaks just kind of surrealist twist on top and you get the seventh guest. They hired a, a professional writer and they shot actors and they did the pre-rendering of the, of the house. And they built the puzzles and they mashed it all together into what was the first truly big interactive movie experience. I think it's fair to say. And that was a really good decision on their part. By doing the ghost part, you can then forgive the whole it doesn't stick into the background. It doesn't look like they meld in properly because they're not supposed to. It's a ghost. It's supposed to be insubstantial. It's supposed to stand out and be jarring. It's supernatural. It's scary. It's coming right for you. Press A. <laughs> They're looking at me, Ray. He's harmless. He just, it's okay. <laughs> just don't threaten him and it'll be fine. Ray. Ray. Ray! So you get the seventh guest. And it was, again, it was right place, right time. 1993, right here, is where this stuff is first becoming technologically viable and where the technology is starting to become cheap enough, prices are falling enough that the public is starting to invest in things like CD drives and better hardware. Seventh Guest hits, and it's the first real interactive movie, FMV interactive movie as we think of them today. They did a good job of working within the limitations. I mean, whether the Seventh Guest is one's cup of tea or not is really immaterial, but the the point is, since they kind of kept the gameplay to puzzles, that you could have in, in any kind of game. I mean, it's basically just a, a puzzle game with, with FMV cutscenes as a reward, essentially. So, you know, you have a puzzle game, and then on top of that, you have cutscenes, and even though the cutscenes look kind of weird, by making them all ghosts, you kind of explain away the weirdness. And uh, that kind of works. So Seventh Guest is huge. Sells at least a million, maybe two. And that's a PC Right. This is a period of time when a PC game, you were over the moon if you sold half a million, and most did not sell half a million. We're talking about a game, PC in this era, selling two million plus. Exactly. Huge deal. And then, of course, the third game, uh, which we've talked about before and won't go into its creation in depth here, is Mist. We will link the episode where we talk about Mist ad nauseum. Exactly. In our Bruderboon retrospective, Mist comes along and. It's different from these others because it's not really FMV. 
It's not like the seventh guest. I mean, you have the brothers in the pages that are kind of video, but the main part of the game is just that they produced these series of still images, pre-rendered still images that were just absolutely gorgeous. And uh, as we talked about, felt photorealistic at the time. If you run it today, we, we won't belabor this again because we talked about it then. If you run it today, it doesn't really look photorealistic. But at the time, in the context of the times, it looked photorealistic. On a CRT, it certainly did. And that was kind of the killer app, even more so than Rebel Assault and the Seventh Guest. That was the killer app. That really pushed CDs. That drove CD-ROM sales. You know, there's some debate. It's like, did everyone that buy it really actually play it? And, and the answer is a lot of them, I don't think, did. But it became the thing everyone needed to have or everyone needed to see or everyone really needed to know about. And so you have these products all coming in right there. And that's kind of when it, it hits boom. And it's like, oh my gosh, these games are almost like movies now. We should be involved in that. We shouldn't just be licensing to these guys. We've been licensing to them. We've been making money on licensing. But now is the time to do this because it's no longer a secondary competency. They have moved into our core competency. Between 1993 and 1995, they all spring up. Time Warner, owner of Warner Brothers, they had kept a stake in Atari. Well, they bought a controlling stake in Atari games, right? I should say specifically Atari games, and combined that with other media stuff that they were just starting up, and they formed Time Warner Interactive. Fox established Fox Interactive. MGM established MGM Interactive. Universal Studios established Universal Interactive. They're all interactive divisions, they're not games divisions, because they're not thinking in terms of just games. They're thinking in terms of interactive entertainment, interactive movies. They're also, depending on the company, thinking in terms of education and productivity type products as well, not just pure games. Disney ramps back up. This is one of those many ramp ups. They do Disney Interactive. Even outside of movies, BMG, Bertelsmann Music Group, which is a big media company, establishes BMG Interactive. All of these media companies come swooping in in about a two-year period, and they all establish their own interactive divisions. How does that work out for people? Well, it depends on the company. Let's take Sony ImageSoft, for example. Remember, we're not talking about the guys that built the PlayStation when we talk about Sony ImageSoft. We're talking about a group that was founded in America to make games on kind of existing systems. They figured, okay, we know what we're doing. This is a CD-ROM medium. This is a, a multimedia medium. We know how to tell stories. We know how to get writers together. We know how to get plots together. They forget about that gameplay part. Game? What game? We are doing movies with interactive. If I can click in a movie, it is good. Right, because the, the movie companies are used to providing you a canned experience. The director of the film has control over the entire process. And that's kind of where they focus their energy is on the places where they have control in terms of graphics and sound and script, such as the script was. And so they just figured we can take a movie we've made. We can throw some cutscenes together and some graphics and sound together. And yeah, I guess we'll make some gameplay around it. And we have a game. They're not used to thinking about the experience of the consumer beat to beat in terms of the consumer having some control over the play experience. They're not used to fine-tuning mechanics. They're not used to 
creating engaging moment-to-moment gameplay. That's not their core competency. So a company like Sony ImageSoft never really makes anything very good because they it's just outside of their core competency. Disney has a disaster because they create this Lion King multimedia thing. It's not a game, but this like multimedia activity thing. They're not very experienced on the technical side. It turns out that they were creating the game on a state-of-the-art computer rig that had a particular sound driver set up that most PCs, I think it was sound, but some kind of driver set up that most PCs, older PCs, didn't have. And so they released this game, Christmas 1994. I, I say game, it's a, not a game, it's an activity suite. But they released this software, Christmas 1994. All of these little Julies and Johnnies around the country open up and say, Oh, Lion King, I love the Lion King. Install it for me, Daddy. And they install it, and it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is it requires this particular driver or this particular hardware setup that is not actually required in the sense of you needed that for the game to function. But because the systems that Disney programmed it on had that, it ended up being dependent on that, even though it didn't need to be. And only people that had really, really new PCs had this. So you had thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even crying children around the country Christmas morning because they couldn't play with their Lion King activity software. I mean, my God, what a PR disaster that was. And how many returns did we get with that? It was just plain inexperience. It didn't have to be that way. It wasn't because the product was rushed or super buggy or anything like that. It's just they didn't know what they were doing, so they ended up requiring something that didn't need to be required that most PCs didn't have. I mean, it was just pure dumb stupidity, (laughs) quite frankly. Yeah, or just as he said, just lack of knowledge on how the system works. And it's not like modern PCs where a lot of it is a lot more homogenized now. Back then in the 90s, it was really a problem where you had to pay some close attention to what the requirements were for a piece of software and make sure you had the hardware in order to support it. One of the ones that comes to mind in my mind is a co-math chip that had to be on a processor. And that was introduced at some point. You needed that for certain games to run. And then you didn't have it. You couldn't run it. Right. Yeah, I think the 486 had a a co-math. Yeah, I think that's when it was put in. Yeah, I believe that's accurate. Maybe that was even the thing on the Lion King. I can't remember now. But yeah, the the point is exactly. uh, Trying to navigate PC configurations was not for the faint of heart. And if you didn't have people that were used to that and, and knew how to tailor a game to be playable on the broadest number of setups possible, then you had a problem. You know, Disney had some successes in these years too, but that was an example of a really bad failure that didn't need to happen. Other companies were a little more savvy. Universal was very smart. And I think Universal was very smart because one of the high-level executives at MCA Universal was Skip Paul. And Skip Paul had come up as first legal counsel and then president of CoinOp for Atari. So this is a guy that had actually been in the video game business in a very real way. And then because Atari is part of Warner, he kind of used that connection. He kind of catapulted himself out of video games into the larger entertainment field and ended up becoming a big wig at MCA Universal. What they did there instead is they did something very smart and something that more media companies should have probably done. 
they went out and got real experts in the video game industry, like Mark Cherney being a great example of that, the creator of Marble Madness, and of course, more recently, the the lead architect on the uh, PS4. Brilliant guy. They got guys like Mark Cherney to be producers at Universal and had them go out and find content and find good content creators that just had good game ideas. Universal didn't try to do what the Sonys of the world and what the Foxes of the world and what the MGMs of the world tried to do, which was, okay, we're just going to translate our media properties into games. We know how to do this because we know how to plot things and we know how to do art so we can do this. And then it just falls apart. No, they took the other track, which was, if we're getting into games, we're not going to worry about adapting our property. We're just going to find good product and we're going to uh, we're going to sell it. Two of the first groups they signed, Insomniac and Naughty Dog. And, you know, they were both starting out. Those were both studios that were essentially starting out at the, at the time, released a, a game or two before that, but were, were essentially starting out. Universal signed both of them. They didn't buy them. They signed them to development deals, gave them space on the Universal lot, and then said, make us some games. And what did they get out of that? They got Spyro and they got Crash Bandicoot. Those were two of the very important early drivers on the Sony PlayStation. Lots of money there. Exactly. So, you know, they took a more pragmatic approach, and then they also invested in Interplay. Interplay Productions, the publisher, they didn't buy them outright, but they bought like a 20% stake in Interplay. So they got in in what I think is a smarter way. They weren't trying to just adapt their properties in. Companies like Fox and Sony really got into to trouble with that. MGM decided very quickly that they were not going to make their own product. They were just going to license. They created an interactive division and they were like, oh, wait a minute, we're no good at this, so we'll just license. BMG made a go at it, but they ran into that same thing. They didn't really have the stomach for it. They were just like, everyone's getting into interactive, so we should get into interactive. And, you know, they put out some games and then they were like, well, this isn't doing much, so why are we in this business? And then they sold out. And of course, one of those games that they put out was a little game called Grand Theft Auto because they had bought the rights to that and then ended up essentially giving that away. I mean, they, they sold the, the properties, but I'm just saying uh, this was Grand Theft Auto, not Grand Theft Auto 3, which was the huge one. But it's like if BMG had maybe stayed the course, maybe they're the company that makes Grand Theft Auto 3. Mm-hmm. Certainly the Hauser brothers came out of the BMG side of it. So, I mean, they had the Hausers, they had all of the ingredients within themselves that would eventually lead to Grand Theft Auto 3. But they got rid of it because, you know, they did it a couple of years. It's like, eh, whatever. This is doing a little. It's not doing much. Why are we here? And then they get out. And that's really the problem of the entire situation is that you have these companies who don't really understand that setting up a new business like this, it is a new business where you have that ramp up time. You have that investment. You're going to lose money or barely break even for at least three to five years before you're fully established. Right. If you're not willing to commit, you're better off not going in it at all. And then you have the problem of Sony, MGM, and the rest of them. And they're really the reason why we have this vision of the Sillywood era being just a bunch of junk games with movies and a little bit of clicky things. Sort of like, oh, yay, I get to play Tremors, the video game, where I click to destroy the snake thingy in the forest or whatever. Yeah, and, you know, Fox did an Independence Day game. And it was just really generic flying missions. And then in between them, you had 
cutscenes from the movie. Really all it is. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's just sort of like, let's take this really poor click thing and slap some movie in it. Yeah. These media companies oftentimes thought that would be enough. I mean, a few of them did other things like Universal doing, uh, you know, Crash Bandicoot. But there was a lot of that going around. And, you know, the other thing with licensed properties, and this is a problem that you get with when they're licensing to the video game professionals as well, not just when they try to make them themselves. You can only start work on a licensed game after you have a certain amount of material already in existence. You have to wait for a script to be done. You have to wait for some basic work, uh, pre-production work to be done in terms of sets and props and costumes, because you have to know what your basic story is and you have to know what your look and feel is. Well, by the time you know all of that, you're probably only seven months out, maybe, from the release of the movie. And you have to release with the movie. A licensed product that's, that's tied to something current has to release at the same time as that, or, or it's no good. Because the whole point is, the company doesn't want to put any extra marketing muscle behind selling this game. They want the game to be sold on the strength of the movie that's out at the same time. In order to finish in time, by the time you have everything you need to be able to make the game, you're really cutting it close once you get into this period of more technological complexity and bigger team sizes. A little 8-bit game, that's fine. I mean, dashing off an 8-bit game in five or six months is pushing it, but you can kind of sort of do it. 16-bit. 32-bit. 32-bit, 64-bit. No. Yeah, it's, it's just not going to happen. So, uh, I mean, it does happen, but what happens is you get mediocre gameplay and you get it, it's really buggy because you didn't have time to test it. You kind of have to keep it generic and dumb in part because you have to hit that tie-in. You know, it's, it's very rare that a tie-in game is considered to be just a brilliant game. I mean, one of the very rare examples of that is GoldenEye. GoldenEye missed by a lot. The movie. The movie came out in 1995. The game came out in 1997. It wasn't meant to be that way. It was supposed to come out as a tie-in to the movie. But, you know, it got behind, and it's Nintendo, and Nintendo doesn't care, so they let Rare keep working on it. And so, of course, GoldenEye became a classic game, but that's only because they were allowed to completely blow their due date on getting that game done in time. Imagine if they didn't have that extra two years to work on it, what kind of horror we would have had. Exactly. You would have gotten a really lame Virtua Cop clone. GoldenEye started as essentially a Virtua Cop clone that would have had no multiplayer because multiplayer was added in very last minute. Nobody would have remembered that. It would have just been another in a long line of blah movie tie-in. The multiplayer is what really gave it its staying power. Exactly. We had late night friends for like a good year (laughs) or so or plus of playing GoldenEye together as friends. Four of us, we'd have tournaments going back together, different modes back and forth. If we had the ability of hooking up two N64s to play eight player, not that that was possible, but if we had that capability, (laughs) we would have done it. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that game was only so great because it wasn't stuck on that timetable. So it it was a combination of an expertise problem and just a timetable problem. You just couldn't do it. And yeah, it was just a a mismatch. This idea that movies or cutscenes with real film footage was going to be the thing that wowed people because it just seemed so fresh at the time. Then, of course, on the video game industry side, you had your 
want to be movie makers being like, oh my gosh, now I can make movies. And so from the video game side, you had this rush to interactive movies or at the very least movie cutscenes. You had the Wing Commander games. Chris Roberts really wanted to be a filmmaker. And so with Wing Commander 3 and Wing Commander 4, he made them interactive movies. And they were really good, though. So they worked better. Now, Wing Commander 4 was especially good, in my opinion, because they did a better job. Well, so it's kind of weird. Let me back up on that. Wing Commander 3 had a really good flight model. The interactive movie portion of it was fine because they got real actors, which a lot of these didn't. They got Mark Hamill and Malcolm McDowell, John Rice davies and even a lot of the minor parts were played by character actors in Hollywood that you might not know their names, but you'll see them on TV and it's like, oh, it's that guy. Hey, I saw him in Wing Commander, <laughs> you know. But, you know, the, the cutscenes weren't very well integrated and the plot was kind of, eh. I mean, the overall story wasn't bad, but like the minute-to-minute plot was kind of, eh. And then Wing Commander 4... They integrated the video better and had more interesting cutscenes, but the the gameplay suffered a little. It still had okay gameplay, but, you know, the flight model and everything kind of wasn't as good in 4 as it was in 3. They didn't spend as much time on that. But they got the balance closer than a lot of them did, because they did at least make sure to still have a solid gameplay element that was completely separate from the movie part of it. The, The movie part of it did not intrude on the flight part of it. And that was important. Uh, it was same in Command and Conquer. Uh, the Command and Conquer series became known for its very over-the-top, very cheesy cutscenes. They did not use the same caliber of professional actor that Wing Commander used. But they gained a certain popularity because they embraced their cheesiness. I mean, they knew it. So you're almost kind of winking at the camera. But again, those cutscenes were completely separate from the gameplay that was going on in a Command and Conquer real-time strategy game. Important to point out here that they had really solid, good game to go off of, and the video is the icing on the cake, as opposed to these other cases where the video is the cake and the gameplay is the icing. Exactly. So you see both sides of this Sillywood Alliance kind of coming at it from a different way. You have the movie companies being like, we'll do some really good movie stuff and then we'll throw in uh, gameplay, grumble, mumble, mumble, something, something, dark side. And then you have the video game people that are like, uh, we'll, we'll get a good solid gameplay going and then we'll put some, you know, movies or something, something, dark side in there. Uh, or you have someone like Chris Roberts who actually does a good job of balancing both. Of course, unfortunately, that led Chris Roberts to believe that he actually was a filmmaker and then he made Wing Commander. Very interestingly, after that, though, he actually became, for a time, a very successful movie producer. He tried to write and direct Wing Commander, and that was a disaster. But then he became a movie producer for a period of time and actually had some successes. So, you know. So really, his talent isn't so much in the directing and writing of the actual stories that are going on here, but really getting the right people together in order to execute his vision. Yes, at at least in that instance, the jury remains out on Star Citizen. (laughs) yeah when did that come out again soon oh yeah i did not contribute to that crowdfunding for the record so yeah and then you know you had the stuff that really didn't blend so well so adventure games really went this direction you know they're kind of following the lead of seventh guest and mist and they really move in this direction. And the company that really kind of leads the way there is, is Sierra Online. And of course, 
we talked about this in the context of Sierra. You know, we don't need to go into huge detail on it again because uh, we did that episode. But the point is, Sierra was a company that was always on the cutting edge of multimedia. They were getting into EGA when everyone was still doing CGA. They were getting into VGA when everyone was doing EGA. They were doing sound cards before anyone else. They had some of the first games on CD-ROM. They had some of the first games that used modems. I mean, they were always on the cutting edge. So it's no surprise that they decided to make an interactive movie as well. Production value-wise, they really raised the bar. Uh, You know, Seventh Guest is 93, Phantasmagoria is 95. You look at those two games side by side, which you can do, of course, with the help of our friendly neighborhood show notes. There's going to be a lot in the show notes. (laughs) I'll probably be throwing in stuff about the CGA and how that works and all the other little weird technical stuff for those who might be interested. Sure. But it's amazing to think that those games came out only two years apart from each other. Part of that is that they used more professional, a more professional film crew. I believe they did use green screen rather than blue screen. And I'm pretty sure Seventh Guest was blue screen. But the other thing was, is, uh, and Roberta Williams herself said this, Roberta Williams just became an absolute slave driver and was tyrannical about making her staff erase every last pixel around every last frame of every last person moving around. <laughs> they put in the extra effort to get rid of all of those <laughs> pixelations and all of those auras and halos around the, around the people. <laughs> and if you're willing to put in the effort, it's going to look good. So you got Phantasmagoria, which looks great and has a perfectly acceptable B-horror movie plot. The acting is not great because most of the actors are not high caliber actors, but most of the acting is not disgraceful either. I mean, it doesn't make you just sit there and cringe like Tommy Wiseau in, in the room or something. There's someone on the couch <laughs> over there. <laughs> oh, hi, Jeff. Hi, Mr. Friendly type person. How are you doing there? But it's better as a movie, though, than a game, because she deliberately made it easier than a lot of her other adventure games, because they knew that full motion video was bringing in fresh blood. Like this whole multimedia piece scene was bringing new people into computer gaming because of a couple of reasons. Just the idea that it's more familiar to something you see in movies or in television makes it more inviting or more comforting for people that aren't into uh, technology already. But also there's this whole multimedia PCs are the future of education thing. And do you want your child to be left behind that are causing people to also buy these computers? So she knew that a game like that was going to attract new blood. So she deliberately dumbed it down and made it very easy. She didn't have to make it as easy as as she did. You kind of got that dichotomy going. You had games that were simplifying. I mean, Myst was simplifying too. I mean, Some of the puzzles took a bit to work out, but in terms of the interface, just click, one click, one mouse, (laughs) one mouse pointer, click everywhere. You know, you don't have the parser. You don't even have like a scum engine set of verbs. It's just here's screen, here's pointer, click on things and see what happens. So you kind of had a dumbing down of gameplay that accompanied these interactive movies. And some of that was limitation of technology, but some of it was just if we're bringing in new people, we want to make it accessible. And so interactive movies just went on a path that just got kind of boring. Where does this leave us on the Sillywood era? Let's sum up a few things. It, it was very important. It did change the industry in a couple of different ways. The media companies did, for the most part, all get back out. BMG left, MGM left, Fox left. Universal 
basically, you know, Universal had contracts with companies like Insomniac and Naughty Dog. But the flip side, the downside of the way they did things was once those initial contracts were up, Sony was basically like, so Insomniac and Naughty Dog made these games. Insomniac made Spyro. Naughty Dog made Crash Bandicoot. Why are we dealing with you, Universal? You didn't make these games. You just contracted with the people that made these games. We have a publisher, Sony Computer Entertainment. We'll just deal with Naughty Dog and Insomniac. Hey, Naughty Dog and Insomniac, do you want more money? (laughs) Right. Yes, Mr. Sony. (laughs) Well, come over here and give me your games and I will give you more money. (laughs) Right. So that kind of hurt the Universal side of things. Universal did then try to establish an internal studio. Actually, our good friend Roger Hector, who we talked about earlier with uh, Disney, became a part of that. And they created a game based on Xena, uh, Warrior Princess. Again, at this point, there was a management change at Universal, and the new management just didn't care about this ancillary business. And then Xena ended up getting canceled before the game was released. And so, you know, they released the Xena game, but there was no marketing behind it because they had been planning for the show to push it, and then the show was gone. So the game kind of sank. It was a new group of executives. They were basically like, why are we involved in something that's not our core competency? And so they shut it down. Xena is the only game they had made, but they had been planning to make other games based on universal properties. But it's just new management, no will to do it anymore. Get out. Disney wound things up again. They'd be back. But for the moment, they kind of wound things down, went back to licensing. Fox, like I said, sold out. The companies got out almost as fast as they got in because they realized they weren't good at it. And they realized that if they weren't good at it, then they shouldn't be spending money to be mediocre at it when they could just go back to licensing. And there's that circular track again, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that kind of that hamster wheel. The circular flow chart is kind of like, oh, video games are popular. We can make money licensing. Then, oh, we're making a whole bunch of money licensing. Why aren't we making our own and keeping more of the profit? Oh, making video games is hard. (laughs) We need to get out of this. And then, oh, video games are popular. We should license, you know, and then it's just that is the circular path that some of these media companies take through the video game industry. The circle of media. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. That's what happens there. Uh, you know, on the technology side, of course, 3D graphics acceleration comes in, 3DFX, NVIDIA, ATI. They start making these advanced cards that can do all this polygonal rendering. You get the Japanese, who never really got in on this full motion video thing, figuring out on the PlayStation how to do polygonal characters in the foreground and pre-rendered backgrounds to create a 3D experience. Does Laura Croft, uh, That's I realize that's... Britain, not Japan, but it's still on the PlayStation. Does Laura Croft look as much like a real woman as the the female protagonist of Phantasmagoria? No. But does she look decent enough that we can tell it's a human? Yes. And can we do so much more with her? Yes. Does Cloud not have hands? Okay, yeah, or fingers, I guess you'd say, rather than hands. Does Cloud not have fingers? Well, no, he doesn't. But do you have a a much more interesting RPG with still has beautiful pre-rendered backgrounds and all of this other stuff? Well, yes. Was Phantasmagoria scary? Uh, You know, maybe occasionally it was. Was Resident Evil really scary because of that darn camera? 
Yeah. So what do you mean that zombie came out of nowhere? <laughs> yeah. So as polygonal graphics, either with pre-rendered backgrounds or even with full 3D environments, became more sophisticated, you had a greater degree of control and interactivity combined with just enough at that time. Nowadays, it's more than just enough. But at that time, just enough realistic look to it that it could be immersive and make you feel like you were in this great experience. So technologically, you didn't need full motion video anymore. The idea was that real people was more immersive than pixel art. Well, now we're to the point where polygonal stuff is just as immersive as video stuff and much more interactive. And not to mention much more capable. The amount of sets I would have to do to set up the video someone doing something now is a lot more cost prohibitive than just setting up some sort of virtual interface in a 3D development studio today and just creating it all in CGI. CGI for video games these days is fantastic and scary what they can do. Yeah. But even in the late 90s, when they couldn't do nearly as much, I mean, in the late 90s, you kind of saw that stuff going away. I mean, Command and Conquer kind of kept their cutscenes because kind of the cheesiness of it had become like part of the... It's part of the mystique. Right. It's part of the experience. But most things just went completely to polygons. You know, Star Wars, Dark Forces 2 had live actors and cutscenes. It was polygonal stuff when you were roaming around shooting things, but they had live action cutscenes. Uh, and then when X-Wing Alliance, different genre, but same company, came out the next year, the cutscenes were all with, uh, you know, polygonal models. The people in some of those cutscenes looked kind of funny, but it just made more sense to do it that way. You can do so much more. Exactly. By the end of the 90s, that kind of thing's gone. And a lot of that synergy that people thought was going to be there never materialized. But there was some stuff that, that lingered and lasted. One of the big things that the big media companies did coming in is it transformed retail and it really forced a lot of consolidation. A video game company or a computer game company, and this is really much more on the computer game end, stuff for PCs, than on like the video game on the console end. A company that's making computer games, it's their sole business. They have to make sure they make a profit. They have to balance how many products they put out a year with how much it costs to put them out. They have to balance how much they manufacture with how much they think they're going to sell. I mean, every company has to do that. But when it's your sole reason for existing, you really have to make sure that you're doing that with every product. So these media companies, it's an ancillary product. Even though, like I said, once they haven't made a profit for a few years, they usually get frustrated and leave. But at the same time, they don't need to make a profit on this stuff to survive. So when they first come in, they don't really care about what they sell. What they care about is how much shelf space they are able to grab in Walmart, in Toys R Us, in Babbage's, in Computerland, wherever they're going. They're fighting a battle for shelf space. That's how they see it, because they're trying to plaster their brand. It's another form of marketing. Just as you want to flood the airways with your commercials, you want to flood the shelves with your software. It's a marketing tool. And so they really, really pushed up the value of shelf space, made shelf space more competitive, and made it a lot harder if you were a smaller company to acquire shelf space. Because the way that one way that you can acquire shelf space at a retailer is you can do marketing plans with them, where basically 
if they buy into your marketing plan, you give them advertising materials and all of this to push your product. You can give them rebates. You can give them marketing plans. You can give them all of these little tricks to get them to desire to carry more of your product on their shelf. You give them this cardboard shelving system to put your Uh game in that you put at the end of the aisle so that it's really eye-catching. Exactly. And so these big media companies that have a lot of pull because they're all over the shelves and not just in the computer game section, they can really get the retailer to take more of their product, which makes uh, for less space on the shelf for other people's product. So the media companies coming in really transformed the computer game industry. It's not a coincidence that the exact same time that these media companies were coming in, 92, 93, 94, 95, was the same period of time that the computer game industry in the United States started to consolidate. And a lot of the smaller independent publishers merged, got bought out, or just uh, ceased functioning. And it wasn't just the media companies gobbling up uh, shelf space. There were a lot of factors, as there is with anything, but that was a big part of it. It put everything on a bigger scale, and it required the video game companies themselves, the computer game companies themselves, to get bigger to survive. That's really the biggest legacy. The other big legacy is some of these companies did persist, and some of these companies made an impact. DreamWorks, the studio started by Steven Spielberg, uh, David Geffen, and uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, created an interactive division. It didn't end up lasting, just like everybody else. They got tired of it, and they sold out uh, to Electronic Arts, but they created Medal of Honor, which was the first World War II first-person shooter that started the whole wave that led to Call of Duty and then all of that uh, that's come since uh, with these military shooters, particularly World War II shooters. That's a whole huge segment of the market that started because Steven Spielberg was doing Saving Private Ryan, DreamWorks, and so he wanted to do a video game that was similar. I mean, Medal of Honor was not a tie-in to Saving Private Ryan, but it was a synergy between what was going on on the movie side and what was going on on the game side. And that's something that had a huge influence every time somebody turns on a Call of Duty game today, even if it's uh, Black Ops or Modern Warfare or one of those other subgenres. I mean go straight back to Medal of Honor, and that's something one of the media companies did. Certainly the biggest one is that uh, in 1993, there was a guy, kind of a spoiled rich kid named Ryan Brandt. His father was big in the publishing business, and they were very wealthy. And Ryan decided that he wanted to make his own mark in the world. You know, his father had made his mark in publishing. He wanted to get involved in something that he thought would make him some money really fast. And he saw this growing synergy with Hollywood and video games and thought that this whole interactive movie thing would be a good idea. His dad knew some people, uh, knew some B-list and even a couple of A-list actors just because he moved in those circles. And, uh, you know, he could get his hand on some money. And so he's like, I can make some interactive movies. He founded a, a little company called Take Two in order to make interactive movies. and. They made uh, a few interactive movies in the mid-90s, and they were kind of bad and kind of unremarkable, and a couple of them sold okay, because this is a period of time when that was really in vogue. So some of them sold several hundred thousand copies, but they're forgettable games today. I mean, even at the time, they weren't getting the same attention as, you know, a Phantasmagoria or something like that. I think Hell, a cyberpunk thriller, was kind of their big one if we wanted to put one in the show notes. You know, then... 
Ryan Brand uh, ends up having to leave because the company gets into some trouble and they falsify earnings to try to get the company out of trouble. That's no good. But uh, even though Brandt leaves, Take-Two lives on. And eventually, when another company, BMG, another media company that's gotten fed up with things, decides they want to get out, as I said earlier, they sell out. They sell out to Take-Two. One of the record producers there that had gotten involved with the interactive entertainment stuff when BMG had it, Sam Hauser, comes over as part of that deal as well. And they get the Grand Theft Auto franchise. And Sam Hauser creates Grand Theft Auto 3. And Take-Two is now one of the mega publishers. It's not as big as EA and Activision, but it's right behind. Grand Theft Auto is a mega, mega, mega franchise, the most mega franchise of all of them. And it comes out of these media companies. It comes out of Take-Two, which was a company specifically made to create interactive movies. And it comes out of BMG, which was one of these media companies that decided to come in at the height of things. And yes, the first Grand Theft Auto was made by DMA Design, a longtime video game company in Scotland. We're not saying that this totally comes out of the media companies. I'm aware of the history. But it's Sam Hauser and his brother Dan that really transform Grand Theft Auto into a phenomenon through Grand Theft Auto 3 and Vice City and on and on. If you get right down to it, I mean, you can kind of say that if there's one truly positive legacy of this period... It's the Grand Theft Auto franchise, because the Grand Theft Auto games from three on, that is really the promise of the interactive movie. That is the real promise of melding Hollywood ideas and cinematic ideas with good technical design and good gameplay. Grand Theft Auto is not an interactive movie, obviously. That's not what we consider it. But really, that is kind of the last thing. That is really what I think... All of those companies that we're trying to band together, we're, we're trying to strive for. So if nothing else, I think it's fair to say that the, the Sillywood era was a big part of the genesis of Grand Theft Auto. And, and in that sense, uh, still lives on and still impacts the video game industry today. All right. Well, that pretty much covers everything with them. And I think we're running out of games to throw on the fire. So <laughs> I guess we'll have to figure out what we're going to talk about next time. So, I thought we'd do something a little different. Don't we do something different every time? Well, you know, different in concept. And go back to the very early days. The pre-commercial days. We've dabbled in the pre-commercial days a little bit here and there. And talk about the genesis of computer game entertainment. Games on computers. And I don't mean going all the way back to Space War, which we've talked about, or some of the 50s experiments, but... There's a thread of continuity in the computer game space that really goes back to the mid-1960s. There's this idea that you really needed the personal computer to really start along the path of gaming on computers. In point of fact, there was a lot of gaming going on in the 1960s and 1970s on early networks, pre-internet networks. And there were a lot of distribution methods where games were being shared across these various networks. I don't mean sharing them as in downloading them through FTP, but through magazines, through newsletters, through clubs. 
through catalogs, type in listings. Right. And so there was this kind of computer game space that was beginning to develop and some computer games that continued to resonate and continued to be very important even once the personal computer era hit in the in the late 70s and early 1980s. And a lot of this set the stage for what gaming became in later years. And I think it might be fun to kind of examine some of that, see how some of this was being built up, some of this infrastructure was being built up, and how games were spreading and being shared before the personal computer and before the computer game industry. We can have some fun with that. All right. ARP Gaming, next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash song forward slash airplane mode used under a creative commons attribution license outro music is bacterial love by roll of music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a creative commons attribution license <laughs>